Raised Sports is a proud member of the Storyhanger Podcast Network. For more information, go to storyhanger.com. Look, I'm not blaming Grant for all the problems that we had, but it's not a success story when people get addicted to anything. Um, so it, it tore our family apart. Our family is still broken. Grant's been dead for almost six years, and our family's still in shambles, and we're still trying to just survive. So I just, um, you know, I, it's devastating to me that um, every Sunday people um, watch these games and act like, you know, this is the greatest thing in the world when um, it's just destroyed a ton of families. For decades now, football has been America's favorite sport. We love its athleticism, its speed, its grace, and if we're being honest, we also love its violence and its brutality. He hasn't moved since he took that hit. The players are modern-day gladiators, sacrificing their bodies for every yard of Coliseum turf. Once again, a violent collision. This one's head-to-head. They get dinged up, they get their bells rung, and then they shake it off and get back out there, all for our entertainment. Are you not entertained? But it is becoming increasingly apparent that there is a price to be paid for this entertainment, long-term effects that can dramatically impact the lives of both the athletes and their loved ones. People need to know that the human brain is a post-mitotic organ. It doesn't have any reasonable capacity to cure itself of injuries. Welcome to season one of the Raised Sports Podcast, in which we'll tackle the issue of concussions and CTE, brain trauma in the sport of football. They took a vicious hit. He's still down, hasn't moved. What does it all mean for the health of the athletes, these modern-day gladiators? I don't, I don't know how you take this out of the game of football. I don't know if there's anything you can do. And how will our growing knowledge of the issue impact the future of the sport itself? In the long run, is it all worth it? Atwater just killed Randy Hilliard. Episode 1, It's Not a Success Story. In football, nothing begins until the center snaps the ball. The quarterback can call for it all he wants, but until the center actually gives it to him, nothing happens. The next thing that generally occurs is that the center crashes headfirst into the man lined up across from him. That's two 300-plus pound men, their brains encased in hard plastic helmets, smashing together. This happens pretty much every play. Grant Fiesel was a center, first at Barstow High School, then at Abilene Christian University, and finally for 117 games in the NFL with the Colts, Vikings, and Seahawks. The game took a huge toll on his body, and Fiesel died in 2012 at the age of 52, officially of alcoholism, but as you'll see, it's a little more complicated than that. He did not understand that he had a brain injury. He died not knowing he had a brain injury. He would say, I know that, you know, I'm going to have problems later with my knees and I'll probably have to have knee replacements. Um, he said, you know, I may have to have a hip replacement. You know, he talked about those kind of things that, that acted as if, you know, they could be surgically fixed. And then he can have somewhat a quality of life. But again, you only have one brain. You, you don't get a transplant and it can't be fixed. And we had no idea that that was the most serious and crucial injury of all the ones that he had. That's the voice of Cindy Fiesel, Grant's wife of 29 years. And this is really her story more than his. In the six years since Grant's death, Cindy has been open about how football affected her husband. 
She wrote a book called After the Cheering Stops, in which she chronicled their story, Grant's addictions, first to painkillers and then alcohol, about his mood and personality changes over time, and about how all of this contributed, sadly, to the disintegration of their family. But to fully understand how difficult things got for Grant, Cindy, and their three children, you have to go back in time and get a feel for what kind of person Grant Fiesel was. In the NFL, Grant Fiesel was known among his teammates as Fightin' Fiesel for his scrappy physical play. He loved the game, but he was hardly a stereotypical jock. Cindy met Grant at Abilene Christian University, where they were both students. She was an art major and a budding Texas socialite, and he was a mellow California dude, a mountain of a man who shuffled around campus in his flip-flops. Cindy was fascinated by Grant's intellectual versatility and his emotional sensitivity. I like to say that Grant was a renaissance man because he... um, got my attention, not because of his football ability. I really knew he was a football player, but I just knew that he was super smart and that he, you know, cared about his grades and that he he liked to be around people. He was a kind, friendly person and he was always smiling and happy. And those were the qualities that really first attracted me to him. And he laughed because when we um, were set up on a blind date by my roommate in college, Uh, He thought that I would know everything about him and football, and I really didn't. Grant liked poetry, and he liked the arts. He was down-to-earth, but also confident enough during their early dating days to play guitar and sing to her. He was also an excellent student and dreamed, as Cindy wrote in her book, of becoming a dentist. And despite Grant's prowess on the field, dentistry seemed at the time like his most likely future career. More on this in a moment. As a father, Grant was a loving and attentive mentor for their three children, Sean, Sarah, and Spencer. Sean and Spencer have both referred to him as their hero, and Sarah once wrote that the greatest compliment she ever received was being told she had a heart just like her father's. It should be noted here that uh, efforts to reach the three children for this story were unsuccessful, so this will be told through the eyes of uh, Cindy Fiesel. He was just a great dad. Um, He, you know, had patience for them. He would read them books, you know, at night. That was one of his things that he uh, loved to do when they were little. And he'd come home from football practice, and he would would read to them at night. And so it was real important for him to just connect with the kids, of course. Um, One of the things that, that happened to him as... I say he now I understand that he had a brain injury. So as the brain injury, I think, started compounding, um, he had, you know, I think he had less patience, less tolerance. He had more aches and pains. Um, he was he was less able to, to be with them because of the fact that, you know, he, he started isolating. You know, once they got to be a little bit older, he was isolating and drinking in the evenings and he wasn't available like he had been when they were younger. We mentioned a moment ago that Grant Fiesel had wanted to become a dentist. In fact, he was well on his way to doing just that as he wrapped up his time at Abilene Christian. He had passed his exams and been accepted to multiple dental schools. They even allowed him to delay entry. So how that works is if he was drafted and went to training camp but ended up being cut, he could still enroll in dental school uh, late. And Grant's NFL expectations were not particularly high. Abilene Christian was a small program, not known for churning out big-time football players. And Grant 
didn't really have high expectations of being drafted, and he told Cindy that he wouldn't bother to try out for anyone as a free agent. So if he did not get drafted, Grant told Cindy, he'd be going straight to dental school. But when the Baltimore Colts chose him in the sixth round in the 1983 draft, that changed everything. And when he made the Colts roster, dental school would wait. Cindy still struggles to deal with that twist of fate and to think of what might have been had Grant not been drafted. Our lives would have been different. And it makes me sad because um, then I turn it around and think I would have my family. Um, You know, Grant would have had a different health record, I think. I mean, he might have still had some issues and had to have knee replacements and things like that. But even having brain damage, um, I think that he would have been able to have some good years of his career. Now, he might have gone downhill, you know, earlier, true. But, you know, um, I think that, that he would have, he would have had some better years. I really do. I don't think he would have died at 52. I mean, 52 is young. But in 1983, none of this was on the minds of Grant or Cindy. Grant was big and strong, six foot seven, tall for a center, and nearly 300 pounds, seemingly indestructible. And football became a quest. First, it was a quest to make a team, then to become a full-time starter, which he would do with the Seattle Seahawks. And then it was a quest to hold on to that starting position as long as possible. Somewhere along the line, the dream of dental school faded into the background, in part because of what in hindsight was a pretty ominous sign. One day, Cindy saw that Grant had left a stack of medical study books on the counter. When she asked him about it, he confessed that he didn't think his body would hold up as a dentist, of all things. Too much standing and leaning over patients. His back wouldn't stand for it. So... He decided to study to eventually become a medical doctor instead. He thought it would be easier on his body. Grant would take and pass the MCAT with flying colors, and he was accepted to multiple medical schools. But, like dentistry, med school would also wait. Meanwhile, the more he played, the more the injuries piled up. In training camp with the Vikings in 1985, Grant shredded the ligaments in his left knee and had to undergo reconstructive surgery. Three years later with the Seahawks, He did the same thing to his right knee in a playoff game against the Houston Oilers. After the surgery, Grant developed a staph infection in that knee and required more surgeries. And it was so bad at one point that the doctors warned him that if they could not get the infection under control, the leg would have to be amputated. But Grant would recover and keep on playing football. As Grant's importance to the Seahawks increased, The team started doing what it could to help him manage his ever-increasing pain. Every Sunday after the game, he'd come home with a little baggie filled with pills, courtesy of the team. In her book, Cindy said she asked him what they were for. He replied, everything hurts. The team doctor gave me these when I told him I was in pain. Grant, um, his fingers hurt, his knees hurt, his back hurt, his neck hurt, his toes hurt. He constantly had uh, the skin rubbed off of his knuckles and his toenails were broken off. I mean, all of those things were were hurting. I think that was around the years that he started, you know, taking and relying more on the opiates to get through. Um, of course, they were readily and available at the Seahawks. And uh, so I, I say that, that the pills became um, an issue because he... He was hurting more and more. So those were the those were the things that started happening at the end of his career that didn't seem normal to me. Um, it just he wasn't he wasn't himself. 
the way he he had been prior. And so um, I think the injuries, compounding, caused. Grant would retire after the 1992 season, and initially things were fine. He poured his efforts into Cindy and their three children, as if making up for time lost to the demands of a busy football career. But gradually, over time, things began to change. He became more withdrawn, more moody. The interest in med school? Yeah, that kind of just faded away. Instead, he got a job selling medical equipment. And when Cindy asked him about it, he simply reasoned that, hey, at least I'm still in the medical industry. Grant continued to take painkillers when he could get them, and he supplemented that with hard alcohol, sometimes taking them together. At first, he would go out after the kids were asleep to buy whiskey, or later, vodka would be his beverage of choice, but soon he would simply hole up in his office at home, drinking much of the night and sometimes during the day. When Cindy questioned Grant about it, he would simply say that he was in pain, and this is what he had to do to deal with it. But eventually, his evasiveness would change into something a little darker, a little meaner. He'd hide liquor bottles in the house, and when confronted, his resistance was more forceful. He'd swear at Cindy. He'd call her fat and other names, tell her to just leave him alone. There were also a couple of instances where he got physical with her. In one particularly frightening episode that Cindy writes about in the book, Grant storms into the guest bedroom where Cindy was sleeping. He comes in at three in the morning, flips on the lights, brandishing a large knife that he got from the kitchen. And this is uh, Cindy's writing right here. He said he'd just called the police and told them I was trying to kill him. I looked at the kitchen knife he was holding. You said I was trying to kill you? Yeah, I did. Grant, how could I kill you when I've been sleeping soundly in the guest bedroom? Grant hadn't thought of that. But you want to. No, I don't. Go back to bed. Grant shrugged and left. Once I heard the master bedroom door close, I jumped out of bed and locked myself in the bathroom. I didn't know if he would be coming back or what he was capable of in his mind-altered state. I hadn't forgotten how he squeezed my arms or choked me in front of my daughter, half out of his mind with rage. I was afraid of Grant, who constantly called me vile names and slammed doors in my face. No matter how frail Grant was, he was still bigger than me. Um, it was hard for me. I just, um, I kept seeing, you know, like you said, feeling him slip away, um, begging him to get help. And I can remember at one point, um, you know, pretty much every night, we had um, arguments because he would be drinking and I would say, you've got you've to get help, you've got to get to rehab. You know, it was a huge source of a problem in our relationship and in our marriage because um, I just continually wanted him to seek help and he just kept thinking he could do it on his own. But, you know, typical to an addict, um, they are in denial. And I just think that Grant was, was in denial a lot about what was going on with him. The sensitive, intelligent, well-rounded man was, in a lot of ways, gone. The pain led to the pills, led to the alcohol, and you can probably see this coming, led to the breakup of the Fiesel family. Grant's behavior grew worse, and he resisted efforts to help him. At one point, he did agree to go to rehab, but he left after a week of what was supposed to be a month-long stay. Cindy didn't know what was happening to him, not really. She may have thought he was becoming an alcoholic, but 
She had no idea that Grant's brain was damaged and he couldn't do anything about what was happening to him. What she did know was that it was becoming increasingly difficult to be around him, and so she stayed away. She got a job teaching art. She started going to the gym. His comments about her weight had gotten to her. Grant noticed her absence and accused her of having affairs, an accusation that shocked her, except then that's actually what she did. It was brief and it was regrettable. Cindy is open about it in her book, but it was one of the final dominoes to fall in their relationship. Um, I came undone at the end. I think that I had a mental breakdown when I had the affair and the things that weren't right that I did. I've apologized for all of those things, but I'm just saying that wasn't typical of my behavior. I had, um, I had had as much as I could mentally. I think that people can only take so much. I'd taken 29 years of the man that I loved distancing himself from me. Um, I don't know that many people that can stand strong through that. Most people would have left their significant other years prior. I stayed with Grant because I loved and adored him, and I wanted my kids to have their dad. But um, I think now that maybe I did a lot of damage by just staying. I don't know. It wasn't long after the affair that Cindy did leave Grant. And then about a year after that, Grant's liver failed him. He died on July 15, 2012, at the age of 52. After Grant died, his brother Greg had his brain sent to the Boston Medical Center to have it studied. This was roughly a decade after Dr. Bennett Omalu had discovered a previously unknown disease that he called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Omalu discovered it while performing an autopsy on former Pittsburgh Steelers great Mike Webster, who, like Grant Fiesel, played the center position. CTE had also been discovered in the brains of ex-NFL players Terry Long, Andre Waters, Tom McHale, and several others. Players and the public were beginning to notice a trend. By then, even even six years ago, you know, already Dave Durison had killed himself, Ray Easterling, um, Mike Webster, um, you know, there were already plenty of, of guys that that had were were having their brains autopsied, and so it was being talked about a little bit. And Grant said, "Maybe I have that disease that Mike Webster has." And I remember saying, "What is it?" And we kind of talked about it a little bit, but again, I don't remember ever getting on my computer and researching CTE because it just didn't even ring a bell to me that Grant would have it. Grant did have it. He was diagnosed with stage 3 CTE. There are four stages. The third is marked by memory loss, executive dysfunction, difficulty with attention and concentration, explosivity, and difficulty managing emotions. Another thing to note about CTE is it is not believed to be necessarily connected to concussions. Yes, concussions damage the brain, but it goes beyond that. It is believed that repetitive blows to the head, whether they result in concussions or not, cause CTE. Repetitive blows to the head, such as the kind of center like Grant Fiesel or Mike Webster, receive and deliver on nearly every play. For Cindy Fiesel, Grant's worsening condition, the mood swings, the personality changes, the alcoholism, the addiction to painkillers, it all is a result of the brain trauma he suffered from years of football. Every single play, every single play. And that's what, you know, really just like talking about it right now brings tears to my eyes because it just makes me sad to think that all those years 
Um, you know, he could have been a doctor. He was accepted into the dental school and medical school, and he had options. A lot of these guys that play football don't have any options, and they take the money over, um, you know, the smartness of knowing that it causes brain damage. Now, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the guys that are playing at this point because they know. Grant didn't know. Um you know, he could have made more money being a doctor and, and being a doctor his whole life than he made in football the years that he played because people didn't make the kind of money in the NFL the years that he played like they do now. So, um, you know, it's just it's so tragic and sad. It's just uh, it's hard to believe that it's, it's been my life. It's hard to believe that it was Grant's life, that, he's, that he died for other people's entertainment. It's just um, it's overwhelming to me. Cindy holds the NFL accountable for so freely handing out painkillers to Grant, playing a role, in her opinion, of turning him into an addict. But mostly, she's just sad that playing the game changed her husband into someone who, in the end, she hardly recognized. And she's devastated by what happened to her family. Her children have not spoken to her since Grant's death, she says. Her text messages go unreturned. Mother's Day is ignored. Cindy says they blame her for the mistake she made and for leaving Grant when he was suffering and in need. But she doesn't think they understand the whole story. A lot of other families that have been through what our family's been through, they're broken. And I know that that's not what Grant would want. Listen, I understand now Grant had a brain injury. He wasn't just an addict. He was a brain-damaged addict. He couldn't control anything that was happening to him. Cindy wishes she had been more knowledgeable about what Grant was dealing with at the time, saying she would have been better equipped to help him, better able to present evidence to convince her husband to really seek help. She also wishes she had a chance to explain everything to her children and to work on healing those relationships. She says she knows that time heals, and she's hoping and praying that over the weeks, the months, the years ahead, that, in her words, Their hearts soften, and they decide they want to discuss it. Because she believes that the situation will not get better for any of them until they all sit down and talk about what happened. Thank you for listening to the Raised Sports Podcast. For more on this episode, including an excerpt from Cindy Fiesel's book, After the Cheering Stops, go to RaisedSports.com. You can also purchase her book on Amazon or all the other regular places you buy books. This episode was written and produced by me, Bob Harkins. As far as the music, there's one beautiful song on here called Waking Stars by Kai Engel. The rest of the music comes from DLSounds.com. Please follow Raised Sports on Twitter and Facebook, and if you'd like to support our work, become a member on patreon.com slash raised sports. There, for as little as a dollar a month, you can receive special member benefits and be eligible for prizes, and all the money helps us make more episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.